guys, today I'm going to read chapter 19 of Shakespeare's Pie. So here I go. Julia had mentioned her father a time or two in rather a computinous terms. But now, but until now, I had not set eyes upon the man. I saw no hint of family remembrance resemblance. Though Julia had been gone more than a year, I could picture her perfectly. She was tall for a girl with auburn hair, brown eyes, and ruddy coloring common to folk of a sanguine. This fellow looked more like a chocolate with his swallow yellowish skin and, and had they been washed might have proven to be a light brown. He was short of stature and his frame was as light as mine. Is she well here, Ken? I asked. I haven't heard from her in some time. Oh, she's healthy enough. Oh, she's healthy enough. If that's what you mean. But she's in a bit of a whipper just now. A whipper? Said Sam. You know, a play. A tight spot. That's why I've come to see your masters about. What sort of fight? I asked anxiously. Well now, why don't you just take me to the lovers in charge here, eh? That's what... That what way I won't have to say it twice. Hi, all right. Sam, go ahead and start on the tearing room. I want to hear about Julius Whis- Whipper, he protested. I'll, I'll give you all the details later. As I led Julia's father up the other stairs, I said, How is it that you can who I was? I seen you and her together. I never said nothing. She didn't fancy me coming round the theater or ta- talking to any of her actor friends. She wouldn't want me coming here even now, I expect. She's always hated anybody asking anybody for aught. She gave me that rotten grin again. I don't know why she gets that. It's never bothered me. No, I suppose not. From that, what Julia had told me, he certainly did not hesitate to accept anything from anyone, usually without their knowledge or permission. Both Mr. Herrings and Mr. Shakespeare were in the office, one settling down columns or figures, the other lines of the bill. Excuse me, sir, I saw I said softly to Mr. Hemmings. There's a white here to see you. Oh, what sort of white? Julia's father, actually. Mr. Hemmings rose to greet the stranger. I don't believe we've met, sir. John Hemmings, the company man. Julia's father ignored the hand that Mr. Hemmings offered. He pulled the scarf up under his chin, even though the room was warm and looked about furtively. Obviously, 
he was not much used to such surroundings, modest though they were. This manner was a curious mixture of solemn and obsequious, as though he recognized that he was not the same social level as these men, but at the same time resented it. And what and your name, sir? said Mr. Hemming, prompting him. It's Colgan, Tom Colgan. Of course. Would you like to sit down? No. This won't take much time. Long and short of it is, the girl's in trouble over there in France and needs money to get home. Trouble? You think serious, I hope? Hogan drew a worn leather pouch from his grimy tunic and fished it from the sheet of paper folded into a small square. Here's what she sent. I had a fellow. I had a fellow. I had a fellow read it to me, but I don't recollect it at all. As he passed the paper to Mr. Hemming, he held the scarf in place with his other hand, as though afraid to catch him in chill. Read it yourself. Aloud, if you will, said Mr. Shakespeare. Mr. Hemmings unfolded the paper and read its contents in the same way he spoke upon the stage, with no trace of with no trace of stumble. She writes, Father, you will no you will no doubt to be astonished to hear anything of any sort from me. Less of all the plea for help. However, I have no else, no one else to turn to. And whatever our feelings toward each other, we are bound together by blood. For reasons I cannot go in, into here, I have had to leave Monsieur Beverie's acting company and quit my lodgings as well. I have found a shabby sleeping room that costs only a few francs, francs, and it's worth far less, but I have been unable to find any sort of work that is respectable, the and the little money I have saved is quickly disappearing. I know that isn't, isn't fair for me, after having nothing to do with you for so long, to ask you for now, now for aid. But if there is any way you can send me three pounds to pay my message, message passage home, I would be most grateful. If you cannot, well, at the risk of sounding overly dramatic, I honestly do not know well what will become of me. Mr. Hemmings returned the paper to Colgan. I assume that you intend to send her the money? Of course I do. What do you take me for? I mean no insult. Three pounds is a substantial sum, though. How much have you raised? Not a great deal, Colgan cheerfully admitted. I'm out of work myself just now, you see. I was hoping your gentleman might see your way clear up to put up the money, considering she was apprentice here at all. 
Mr. Hemmings exchanged glances with Mr. Shakespeare. We will discuss this privately, said Mr. Shakespeare. Which, will you wait outside with Mr. Colgan, please? I wanted to ask them what were, what there was to discuss. I wanted to point out that the amount needed to rescue Julia was less than half of what Judith was so cautiously spent on a gown and a pair of shoes. But I had nothing, only showed Tom Cogan into the hallway. Once he was out of the room, all trace of Ozbicuners vanished, and Solness took over. I think they just hand it over. Three pounds is nothing for the likes of them. I was inclined to agree, though the company was having financial troubles of fate of late. It was certain that most of the shares were well off, if not wealthy. Mr. Pope, with all the mouths he had to feed, was the exception. After only a minute or so, Mr. Hemmings called us in. We would like to help Julia, of course, he said, if she truly is in trouble. What do you mean, if, said Cogan? You've seen the letter. But how can we be sure it's genuine, said Mr. Shakespeare. Cogan gave a dis disrisive laugh. Do you suppose I wrote it myself? Of course not. But you might have had someone to write it for you. Or write the prose. For the propose of prying money out of us, perhaps. Cogan stepped towards him and a threatening look on his face. Here, are you calling me a thief? I don't believe I need to, said Mr. Shakespeare, said calmly. That says is plainly enough. I followed his gaze. The scarf Cogan had crept, warped so carefully around his neck, had loosened, revealing a vivid patch of scar tissue in the shape of a T, the mark of a man who had seen been branded by the law. Colvin pushed the scarf back into place. That happened a long while ago, and I took some, all I took was some bread to feed my wife and my daughter. Really, said Mr. Shakespeare, I've never heard of a man being branded for stealing bread. My, might I look at the letter? I put in. I've seen Julia's hand enough times to recognize it. Colgan held up the paper. It, it's from her right enough, I said. There, you see, said Colgan triumphantly. All the same, said Mr. Shakespeare, if we turned over three pounds to you, what reason do we have to believe that it was three pounds to you that... What reason do we have to believe that it would ever reach her? She's my daughter. What's that reason? You've never shown much concern for her welfare in the past, said Mr. Hemmings pointed out. So you'll not give me money, is that it? Neither man replied. Colgan stared at them fiercely for a moment. For a moment.
moment, as though he was considering demanding the money at the point of a knife. Then he said disdainfully, I might have known I'd get no help from you lot, as it was you that brought this on her to begin with. If you'd let her stay on here, she'd have never gone. She'd had to go. She never had to go to France. He shoved the door and flung it open. You know, if I were smart, I wouldn't have come here. I'd have met you in a dark alley somewhere. You'd have handed over the money then. I'll wager. Dismayed, I watched him leave, then turned to Mr. Shakespeare. You're not going to help Julia at all, then? You know as well as I, as I, that if we handed the money over to her father, she would never see a penny of it. No doubt he was right. Cogan was a thief after all. But I couldn't help the feeling that shares were more concerned about the fate of their money than about Julia's. Perhaps we can find some other way of helping her, Mr. Hemming said. He tried to put on a comforting hand on my shoulder, but I pulled it away. How can we? When we don't even know where to find her. I hurried out hoping to catch up with Kogan and learn where I hurried out. Oh, uh, Julia could be reached. I scrambled down the stairs, across the courtyard, and into the street. There was no sign of him in, in any direction. I started walking west at a hap- rapid pace, thinking he might be headed for Alastia, the, the fall and fearsome precinct that was claimed by the city criminal class as the sort of sanctuary. I knew that Julia once lived there. Perhaps her father still did. After a quarter of an hour, I was forced to conclude that either he walked far faster than I or he had gone some other way. I was reluctantly headed back through the cross keys and set myself to thinking about how I might help Julia. If it was clear that, for whatever reason, she was not wanted, me, or the company, to show her of her flight. Otherwise, she would surely have written to us, not to her father. But now that we did know, she would not sit by and do nothing. Or at least I could not. Though she was far off in France, I still considered her my nearest friend. If the sharers could not rescue her, then it was up to me. The problem was, of course, that I hadn't three shillings, let alone three pounds. I, if only I had saved my wages, all the consequences. Some of my purchases, such as sweetmeats and stockings for Mr. Pope's orphan boys, I did not regret. But why had I wasted one penny after 
nothing my future read while Julia's future hung in the balance. There must be some way I could raise the money. I could not ask for Mr. Pope for it at least. At least not all for it. The cost of running so large a household left him with so little to spare, even in the best times. Sam would no would no doubt advise me to buy a chance in the lottery, but that was about reliable as one of Lazarus' predictions. Though there was a slim possibility that I might win something eventually, there was no way of knowing how much or when. I needed three pounds, and I need it, needed it now. There was always dishonest means, of course, according to several pounds. Uh, according to Sam, one of the costumes from the company's trunks might be worth several pounds, but the tearing room was closely guarded by these days. In any case, whoever angry I might be at the sharers, and I could not have brought myself to steal from them. that Tom Cogan had no such scruples. Why had he not simply gotten the money through the usual methods then instead of coming to us? Perhaps it was just to, to a large sum. No ordinarily tradesmen, a few gentlemen carried about a purse that fact. Cogan would have had to hold up the Lord Mayor himself. I would gladly have sold anything I owned to keep Julia, to help Julia, but there was nothing among my paltry possessions that I would fetch more than a farthing. Or was there? A good play was fairly valuable, commonly. After all, I had been brought to London for the expressive purpose of stealing one. I wasn't certain how much a playwright could expect for his work. Sam once told me that Mr. Shakespeare got 20 pounds for his first script, but then Sam was known to exaggerate. In any case, no one in his right mind would pay 20 pounds for a script by an unknown apprentice player no matter how good it was unless unless perhaps i put mr shakespeare's name on it as as confitor no it would be unfair to trade reputation that way but when he gave me the play he clearly said that i might do with it as i wished so I could, so I could, in good conscience, uh, claim it as my own. With any luck, I might sell it for a couple of pounds, provided, of course, I could fi- finish it. As ha- Hamlet would say, "I bears the rub." I vowed that I would renew the 
and redouble my efforts that evening and make as quick work as I could. Then all the world remained was to find Colin. Ah, well, compared to the writing in a distant play, then to reveal the whereabouts of one of her, their own should be in the lark. In the meantime, I was wanted at the rehearsal. To my relief, Judith did not attend. She had not been at our performance the night before either. Whatever interest the theater had held for her seemed to be fading. Though I tried hard to give my fall attention to my lines, Judith Plight whined heavily on my mind, and I made nearly as many blunders as I had with Judith watching. The rehearsal seemed interminable. When Mr. Hemmings entered the room, I gave a silent sigh of relief, thinking that he had come to summon us to dinner. Then I saw that he was not alone. Four unfamiliar figures, men, clad in metal breastplates and helmets, and armed with fourth, and armed with the combination of axe and spear that is called a halberd. The, the fourth was a tall, gant fellow who wore a garb of gentleman. The man's eyes surveyed the room, searching the face of each player in turn, as though he was seeking someone in particular. Clearly, whoever he was sought was not Mongus. He was... He scowled and, turning aberrantly, headed back down the stairs with the guards close behind him. When they were gone, we gathered around Mr. Hemmings, who looked un, un, uncharacteristically grim. What did that lot want? asked Sam. They were pure severity. Persevitans, said Mr. Hemmings. I beg your pardon, said Sam. Priest hunters, Sam laughed. And they expected to find one in the company players? Apparently so. It would seem that the man who calls himself the Garrett is, in fact, Father Jared. A Jesuit priest. So that was chapter 20, uh, chapter 19. Bye guys, see you later. See you later, see you later, see ya. See ya, later.